And uh, that song, I didn't talk to Drew about what I was preaching about, but it is exactly in line with what we're talking about today, because we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. Am I on? I'm not coming through here. Okay, good. All right, I guess it's more accurate to say one of the temptations of Jesus, because at the end of this, we'll see that Satan departed until an opportune time. So he never, uh, he never stopped his efforts, but this was an intense period of temptation by Satan. And we're going to be in Luke 4, 1 through 13. You'll sometimes hear Jesus referred to by theologians and pastors as the second Adam. The reason for this is the fact that both of these men were representatives for all of mankind. And we will ultimately be judged to either be in Adam, in our sin and rebellion, or in Christ and in Christ's righteousness. Now, don't be too quick to say that it isn't fair for you to be judged because of Adam's sin, because every time you and I sin, well, we, we give our uh, appreciation to what's, what Adam did. We agree with Adam when he first rebelled every time that we do that. It's true to say that we're sinners because we sin, but it's also true to say that we sin because we are sinners, we inherited a fallen nature from Adam and Eve. So let me give you a scriptural example of this thinking. Angie, I'm going to let you run things up there, okay? Let's look in Romans 5. Uh, it talks about death in Adam and life in Christ. Specifically, let's look at Romans 5:19. It says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So what that means is, in Adam, he was our, our federal head. He was our, we were all in Adam genetically, right? And so when Adam rebelled, he cursed the whole human race to follow. And likewise, when Christ sacrificed himself and lived this perfect and righteous life on our behalf, we who are in Christ... Just like we were in Adam, if we get out of Adam and in Christ, then we'll be judged based on his righteousness. So that's what Romans 5, 19 is talking about. And that's why we'll sometimes hear people talk about Jesus being the second Adam. We'll see similarities in the method of Satan's attacks and the differences in the way that Adam and Eve on the one hand and Jesus on the other responded to Satan's temptations. If you have your Bible and notebook, please, please get them out and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And guys, I found that uh, it helps some people concentrate to take notes. It helps some people to concentrate just to listen. But it helps everybody remember to take notes. If your memory is anything like as bad as mine is, and I hear it gets worse as you get older, <laughs> then you might want to write a thing or two down. All right, Luke 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. First of all, I want us to see the differences in these temptations. Now, the setting of Adam and Eve's temptation was the Garden of Eden. It was the most perfect and ideal place that anybody could receive any temptation. They had all of their, everything they needed was supplied directly by God for them. They didn't have any crisis of faith. They didn't have to wonder if God was real. They saw him walking in the garden with them every day, right? So they are the most without excuse of anyone who has ever been tempted. Now Jesus, on the other hand, was in the Judean wilderness, now, he was out there with no food. He fasted for 40 whole days. Now, we assume that he drank water or God sustained him, but a, a human can't live 40 days without water. So, and it doesn't say anything about water, but it says that he ate no food for 40 days. And then in the Bible's way of understatement, it says, and he was hungry. <laughs> I bet he was hungry after 40 days. So he was there not having his, his uh, needs supplied at all, but was in this rough, terrible wilderness with some rocks and some scorpions and, you know, some birds for company. So there's a big old difference in the situation of the temptation. Now, Jesus was alone in the wilderness. Adam had a helpmate, perfect for him, literally made for him. You know, we say somebody was made for, these people were made for one another. Well, Adam and Eve were, were literally made for one another. And he had that kind of companionship. And yet Jesus was all alone, minus the scorpions and the, the birds. Speaking of which, if you want to be able to resist temptation, stay in church where you are surrounded by people who can help you. You know, if you watch a nature show, you'll see some gazelle and they're out running about and this one dummy goes away from the herd. And that's the one that gets eaten, isn't he? The lions come eat that one. Don't be the dumb gazelle. Stay with your brothers and sisters in the church. Now let's also look. There was a feast for Adam and Eve versus a fast for Jesus. Now the Garden of Eden was there where God provided for their every need. There was fruit in the garden. There was all kind of fruit in the garden. And, you know, Satan will come up and say, so God said, don't eat any of this fruit, right? Well, of course that's not what he said. God said, you can have all of this except this one thing. So they had all they could eat of the most perfect, wonderful fruit. And yet Jesus was out there for 40 days without a bite to eat. The enemy will come after you when your guard is down. Now, guys, sometimes our guard is down because we're sick. 
Uh, when we feel physically bad, it affects us spiritually. I, I hate that it does. But when I'm sick, I feel low in every way, spiritually, physically, mentally. Unfortunately, that's how it is. But sometimes we put our guard down because we neglect the spiritual disciplines that keep us strong. And that way we're letting our guard down by something that we could actually prevent if we had enough sense to. So let's make sure we don't do that. Let's feast on the word of God regularly. Let's feast on the companionship of those within the church regularly. And you may say, well, I can't right now because of the coronavirus. I know, but this too shall pass, right? Now, President Trump gets in trouble every time that he says it will ever go away. But we all know that it eventually will be okay, right? We will get uh, immunity to it. We'll get vaccines to it. Eventually, we'll be able to fellowship with one another like the church is meant to. But let's do that as much as we can now. And then when we can, oh my goodness, let's not take it for granted. Let's gather joyfully so that we can have the fellowship and the strength and the companionship of our brothers and our sisters. So now let's look at the similarities in the temptations. In Luke 4, verses 3 and 4, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now there's an obvious comparison of food, right? In the Garden of Eden, the, uh, the serpent tempted Eve to eat fruit. We always act like it's an apple, but I don't know what it was. Uh, but anyway, some kind of fruit. And so it had to do with food. And he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, make this stone turn into bread. So obviously there's that comparison. But much more importantly, I believe, Satan questioned what God said and tried to get Adam and Eve successfully to question what God said and then tried to get Jesus to question what God had said. In Genesis 3.1, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See how he's trying to say, man, God is mean, isn't he? I mean, all this is here, but you can't have any of it. He's really keeping you from your best life now, right? That's the implication. Did God actually say? Well, we can compare that in, in Jesus' temptation to if you are the Son of God. Luke 4, 3 says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, subtlety and suggestion can be a lot more effective than an outright assault on the truth. You know, if, if I were having... A friend over for lunch. I'll use Jimmy because he's sitting up here. If Jimmy were at my house eating lunch and Melissa were getting ready to go to work and she comes and she says bye to us and Jimmy says, you know, um, Melissa goes to a lot of trouble to get her hair and makeup done before she goes to work. Uh, most women don't do that. I, that's interesting. Well, he, he would subtly, and Jimmy wouldn't do this because he loves us, right? But he would be subtly implying maybe she's trying to impress somebody. I wonder who she's trying to impress, and I wonder if that ought to be a concern to you, right? And so if I were, if I were going to listen to that, I'd say, man, she does get looking all good before she goes to work. I wonder, I'm not at work, so who's she trying to impress, right? Then that would start a little doubt creeping in there, right? But if he said, 
hey, so, man, I think Melissa's cheating on you. And I said, why? He said, well, because she put makeup on. I said, that's dumb, <laughs> right? So subtlety is the better way to get you questioning. And so that's what Satan does there. He introduces that little subtle question, and he says, if you are the Son of God, or did God actually say, and he starts questioning the Word of God. So Satan started by implying in both the Garden of Eden and in the Judean wilderness that there was reason to doubt the Word of God if they would just stop being so naive and think about it for a minute. Jesus was not to be fooled, though. And if you think about it, the last thing Jesus heard before he went into the wilderness, we, we saw back in Luke 3, 22. It said, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He had just heard God the Father speak out loud and say, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I think Satan wanted Jesus, in his hunger and his isolation, to start wondering if he was hearing things back at his baptism. <laughs> to start doubting what he had heard. Satan was trying to say to Jesus, did God actually say? Now we find Jesus' next temptation in verses 5 through 7. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, Satan is too smart to go fishing without any bait. All right? Uh, he can't tempt you with, with nothing. So sometimes people say, well, you know, the temptations of Satan aren't worth being compared to the glories of Christ. And that's true, but they are tempting or they wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't use those things. He goes fishing with bait. So what does he tell Jesus? He says, it's a temptation to promote yourself, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't tempt them to do something harmful or to lower their, their glory. He tempts them to glorify themselves. This sounds familiar, because back in Genesis 3, 5, Satan says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. See, right now, he's implying that your eyes are closed. You don't know what's going on around you. But if you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan knows well that we like to exalt ourselves. He'll tempt us to exalt ourselves rather than to wait on God. You see, all the stuff that Satan promised and much more was coming to Jesus. He said, I'll give you power and authority. Well, Jesus was going to get power and authority. But Satan wanted to give him a shortcut. In Satan's plan, there would be no waiting, no Gethsemane, no Via Dolorosa, and no Calvary. But God says in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Jesus learned this lesson well, and he would, he would even teach a parable about this. In Luke 14, 8 through 10, he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. 
And he who you invited both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Now notice this very poignant punchline to this parable. In verse 11, it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus knew that God's exaltation in God's time was worth waiting for. When we are tempted to exalt ourselves, we have got to remember this. God is sovereign. Guys, if we'll get that down in our very soul, then we'll get to where we're not dissatisfied with where we are in the situation we're in. Uh, I think I told you that, that when I was at a former church and I was, I've known for a long time that the Lord was leading me toward preaching ministry. I just, I didn't know when that would happen. But I was in a church where um, I didn't think I was being uh, used very much, listened to very much, you know, smart guy like me, you ought to pay attention, right? Well, I was, I was complaining about that to myself. And I heard my friend Mark preach a sermon. And in there, he talked about sovereignty. And he said, if you complain about your current situation, then you are directly complaining against the sovereign God that put you in that situation. Oh, man, was I scolded. <laughs> and I repented. So, guys, God will exalt you when he wants to, where he wants to, and how he wants to. Now let's look at some of the differences in the responses of the temptations. Now we know what Adam and Eve did. They trusted in the word of the serpent rather than the word of God. In Genesis 3, 6, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was to be desired, why? To make one wise. Then she took and ate and gave to her husband. Now why did they do that? Well, Satan told Eve that she didn't know good from evil the way God did. <clears throat> when compared to God, Eve was lacking. As surely as pride comes before a fall, comparison comes before discontentment. These days, some see it politically advantageous to purposely sow discontentment by using comparison. The reigning ideology on the left these days is that there are two classes of people, the oppressors and the oppressed. We who have a biblical worldview can avoid this foolishness Paul preaches that we are to find contentment in whatever situation our sovereign Lord has placed us in. Now guys, we should fight for equality of opportunity. We all know that. We want everybody to be able to work hard and succeed. What the other side uh, is fighting for is equality of outcome, regardless of the effort that anyone puts in, right? And that's, that's why we know that, that that's not actually a biblical principle that we can support. 
Now, how do they get away with this? Well, they, they compare. And anyone that has anything good got it by being evil, opportunistic, and oppressive. Now, when you tell people that long enough and they start believing it, it can sow a whole lot of national discord, which is what we see every day that we look at the news. Now, we can avoid this trap by avoiding unreasonable comparisons. For example, I am okay with every one of you women being better at being a woman than I am. It makes sense to me. It's okay with me. You are all better at it. And I think that all of you women are okay with me being a better man than you are a man, right? I'm not going to compare my ability with yours in this area and then become discontented. Now, Adam and Eve thought that it was unacceptable for God to have superior wisdom to them. When Satan pointed out, God knows good and evil and you don't. And if you eat this, you'll be equal with God. They said, okay, well, that's what we need. We need to be equal. That wasn't what they were made for, but yet they couldn't uh, live with what they had been created to do. Comparison always leads to one of two things, either pride and feelings of superiority or discontentment. And neither one of those is peaceful. So, like I said, we Christians don't need to fall into that trap. Our sovereign God made you who you are, placed you where you are, and called you to serve him in your unique situation. Be content with that. He knows what he's doing. Also, there's no need, there's no end to being dissatisfied if you constantly compare. All right, we don't have a whole lot of people here this morning. And so if I talk to my friend who is at a church and they've got a couple hundred there, if I were foolish, I could become very discontented and say, I want to preach where there's 200 people. But then if the Lord moved me where there was 200 people, you know what I'd do? I'd find somebody who was preaching to 400 people and I'd get discontent all over again, <laughs> right? So constant comparison leads to constant, unending disappointment. So how did Jesus resist these temptations? Well, the short answer is he had no itch that Satan could scratch. James 1, 13 through 15 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, guys, there has to be an inward desire to cause you to sin. So Jesus didn't have an inward desire to sin. He had an inward desire for glory that, was, that he was worthy of, and he should have had, and he knew that that glory would come to him. But he satisfied it in the correct way, by glorifying God the Father and waiting to receive the glory that was due to him. You know, if, uh, if Satan were trying to tempt me and he sent the most handsome man on the planet to come to me and say that he would like to have an intimate relationship with me, it would not tempt me at all. <laughs> Why? Because I have no inward desire for a relationship like that with a man. Now, we see that there's 
on some sense, a temptation because there's the opportunity, right? The opportunity is provided for me, but I don't have anything inside of me that would like to reach out for that opportunity, right? And so inside of me, there's no desire for that sin. And that's how Jesus was able to say to Satan, look, man, here's what the Word of God says, and that is what I live by. So how was Jesus so secure in who he was and in his relationship to God the Father? Well, it's, it's not a mystery, and it's not really even supernatural. It is that he knew the Word of God. Now, guys, in his humanity, you say Jesus was the Word of God. Yes, that's true, but in his humanity, you know how he learned the Word of God? He read it, you know, and he studied it, and he memorized it. Now, Satan, on this third attempt, he said... You like to quote scripture at me? You're like some fundamentalist Baptist preacher. All right, I'm going to quote scripture to you. And he tries to twist scripture and lay that on Jesus. Well, that doesn't work either because Jesus knew and knows all about exegesis. He knew how to interpret what scripture really meant. And he knew that scripture couldn't be uh, antithetical to other parts of scripture. So Satan's attempt to use scripture even to fool Jesus didn't work. Because he read it, studied it, and memorized it. We need to do the same. Guys, you know a couple of weeks ago, or three weeks ago, whenever it was, I said there are a lot of times that a preacher can say some stuff that sounds decent and moral and okay, and then cram a couple of verses in there that don't really have anything to do with what he's talking about, and most folks don't know the difference, and they go, okay, I heard a good sermon. We've got to be more discerning than that. Jesus was more discerning than that. That's why when he was given scripture... As a temptation, he was able to refute that easily. Now, Satan will present you with legitimate desires, but offer you the wrong way to satisfy those desires. You know, do you desire financial stability? Good, I do too. There's nothing wrong with that. One way is you can be jealous and demand that those who do have resources give them to you. (laughs) By the way, you can apparently get a lot of votes if you go that route, right? Or you can work hard and trust the Lord to provide for your needs. It's two ways of going about getting financial stability. Do you desire intimate companionship? Well, you can chase inappropriate relationships. Or you can work hard at your marriage. Or if you're a widow or widower, you can work hard at your friendships and relationships in the church. Or if you're just a single person. You can have those intimate relationships in the church in an appropriate way rather than chasing something that Satan will dangle out there for you that will be bad. The point is there are good and godly ways to satisfy your legitimate desires. Our last thing I want us to see is that you can have victory over Satan by being in Christ who was victorious over Satan. Now, when we see Jesus refute these temptations, we we can say, all right, so we ought to be like Jesus. We ought to know the Word of God. We ought to be able to apply the Word of God. And that's true, and we should. But ultimately, you're not going to win 100% of the time. Jesus never sinned. You have, and you will, and I have, and I will. So the only way to really have victory, ultimately, is be in Christ who was victorious over Satan. He lived a perfect life. None of Satan's attempts ever worked on him. Now, you and I know that we can't say the same.
So your ultimate victory over sin and Satan can only be gained by joining with Christ in his victory. That is what salvation is. As we saw earlier with our baptism, we are buried with Christ in death and raised to a new life in Christ. And when we're saved, we go, we're transplanted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, is one way that the Word of God tells us. Another way to think of it is we are in Adam in his sin, rebellion, and death. And then when we are saved, we are placed in Christ in his obedience and his victory. That is what the gospel is. That there's an opportunity for you to leave behind your life in Adam, to die to that, and to be raised to a new life in Christ. And that happens by faith and repentance. If you've never done that, never understood that, And guys, I know I say this and you go, man, you say this every week. The reason is I talk to people who have gone to church for 40 years and I ask them, hey, so if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And they go, well, I I hope so. I say, okay, well, on what basis would you go? Well, I think I've been pretty good. And I go, how could that be the message you got out of church for 40 years? I don't know how, but the, the God of this world blinds the eyes of people. So if you're hearing and understanding the gospel new this morning, come up while we sing and talk to me. Also, if you're here and you're not a member of the church and you'd like to join the church, then come and talk to me and we'll start that process. And also, if you have a prayer that you prayer request that you would like for me to pray with you, I'd be glad to do that and uh, come up and I'll put my mask on and we'll do that. What are we singing, brother? Let's stand together.